Hello, welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Asia Darbinian, and I'm currently a visiting scholar at the Stressler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. I have a pleasure today of speaking with Hachik Muradian. Dr. Muradian holds a PhD in history from that same Stressler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. He is a lecturer in Middle Eastern, South Asian, African Studies at Columbia University and has taught courses at California State University Fresno, at Clark University, Rutgers, Stockton University and Worcester State. Very recently, he was appointed the Armenian and Georgian Area Specialist in the African and Middle Eastern Division at the Library of Congress. Dr. Muradian has published articles on concentration camps, unarmed resistance, the aftermath of mass violence, midwifery in the Middle East, and approaches to teaching history. He is the co-editor of a forthcoming book on late Ottoman history and the editor of the peer-reviewed journal, The Armenian Review. Today, we are here to discuss Dr. Muradian's brand new book, The Resistance Network, the Armenian Genocide and Humanitarianism in Ottoman Syria, 1915 to 1918, published by the Michigan State University Press in 2020. Hello, Dr. Muradian. Thank you for taking time to talk with us about your new book. So why don't Hi, we- thank you for having me. <laughs> sure. Why don't we start from the beginning? How did you come up with such a best-selling title, The Resistance Network, for a history book? And um, would you please tell us about the photo on the cover of your volume? So I started uh, this project as my dissertation at Clark University. And at that point, the cover of the book and the title of, uh, of the book and the project were not very clear. Uh, my dissertation is titled uh, something along the lines of Genocide and Humanitarian Resistance in Ottoman Syria. And uh, in this process over the years, as I defended my dissertation in early 2016, I had seen hundreds of photographs of the Armenian genocide, both published and unpublished. And I had, uh, you know, always wondered what photograph would be a good fit for this, this kind of work. Uh, uh, yet both the cover photo and the title were very much last minute decisions in terms of the publication process. Uh, the, in terms of the photograph, uh, this is an image that I use uh, that I had seen in Paris at the AGBU Bibliothèque Nubar uh, while doing research there. And uh, I was instantly uh, essentially uh, captivated by the way in which it portrays much of what I'm trying to convey in this book. So uh, the fact that you have a number of people, including some of the key figures who were leaders in the humanitarian uh, resistance effort in Aleppo and beyond, uh, sitting and standing. The fact that at the center is 
a woman who plays a key role in this effort, uh, Nora Altunian, uh, the fact that Aharon Shirajian, another key figure in this effort, is also in that photograph, all uh, ultimately uh, convinced me that it would be an ideal uh, photo for the cover, and that is why I proposed that image to the designers at Michigan State University Press. It was also uh, one of those photographs that really, I think, works well with the title. Because uh, when we think about resistance, the photographs from the Armenian experience that come to our minds are typically men on horseback with guns. And uh, this, this cover and this title sort of come together to really emphasize one of the important points that I'm making in this book, which is the fact that armed resistance is only a sliver of the range of uh, responses by targeted groups, and that uh, you know there's, there's a lot more to be mined, both in terms of the way in which we think about resistance and the way in which we represent resistance. And as far as the title is concerned, uh, the subtitle was always there. It is a version of the subtitle that I had in my dissertation, but, and I have to uh, give credit here to my friend and novelist Chris Vojalian, he always says the best titles are three words. They start with the, and then the two other words, the great Gatsby, uh, the, some of his novels, uh, the same way, the Sandcastle Girls, etc. So I did take that advice to heart. And uh, of course, Resistance Network essentially brings uh, together uh, the core of the book. The, the book tries to do a number of things. And, uh, it's not just about resistance, but it's also about the actual policy of genocide and the way it is being executed. But ultimately, what stands out uh, and what I try to emphasize is the agency of the Armenians who are pushing back at the genocidal policies. Great. Um, I mean, it's always wonderful to have such advisors. <laughs> um, well, um, this is a book on the Armenian genocide that helps us rethink a number of aspects of the history of genocide, such as, uh, for instance, concept of humanitarian assistance versus self-help, victimhood versus agency. Uh, would you please elaborate a bit more uh, on these important concepts that you also discuss in your volume. Yeah, for me, it was important to uh, incorporate what I was uh, trying to contribute to the scholarship into the existing scholarship. So this, the existing scholarship is quite rich in terms of the role of Western humanitarians, diplomats, and others in the Ottoman Empire during the Armenian genocide and its aftermath. And uh, both in terms of uh, assisting deportees, in terms of uh, procuring funds, the ma major efforts in the United States by Mirist Relief and its predecessors to raise uh, what was considered to be astronomical amounts uh, for that period. So all of this is quite well documented. And uh, what was missing in the scholarship or, or less appreciated to a large extent, and not just in the scholarship, but also in the public discourse, was the role that Armenians played during the Armenian genocide as key interlocutors in this humanitarian effort that was being uh, waged by uh, Western missionaries and diplomats. 
And my book emphasizes the fact that at the core of this effort were Armenians from the Armenian community in Aleppo and deportees from across the Ottoman Empire arriving in Ottoman Syria in making sure that one, uh, many of these funds are actually uh, received by the deportees. And in this, uh, you know, almost all, if not all, the couriers were locals, mainly Armenians, but also others, Muslims, Jews, and others, and not missionaries and diplomats. The diplomats and missionaries were just receiving this aid, the distribution, and often the threats to life and the risks of imprisonment and torture were directly uh, present for many of these couriers, a number of whom die or, not, or are killed during the Armenian genocide, and I document that as well. So it was important on one hand for me to highlight this. On the other, it was also important for me to demonstrate how there was an indigenous humanitarian relief effort that both predated uh, the Western initiative to raise funds and also uh, lasted for the entire duration of the war and was critical in the effort to help Armenians. So in that sense, I sort of bridge and connect Western humanitarianism with Armenian efforts of self-help. And I also center the Armenian efforts of self-help in this context. Right. Um, so back to the main concept, uh, which is the resistance. So what constitutes a resistance? What does humanitarian resistance mean? And how is it different from armed resistance? So for, for decades now, now, the scholarship on the Holocaust has uh, evolved into uh, more, has, has developed more nuanced, a more nuanced understanding of resistance. That is not just, does not just focus on armed resistance, on violent resistance, but also looks at other forms of resistance, an entire spectrum, range of uh, responses by the victims. So in that, in that regard, actions that are, uh, any actions that aim to sabotage the efforts of the perpetrators, undermine their uh, plans, or uh, uh, in any way uh, help save uh, victims uh, are part of that kind of constellation of different responses that, that is considered. Uh, unfortunately, though, for the case of other genocides in general that are studied, and uh, the Armenian genocide in particular, which is, uh, even though it is the second best studied case of mass violence and genocide, but it's still in that regard, uh, you know, the scholarship really uh, is uh, lags behind. Uh, and, and that's because, you know, if at all, when re resistance is discussed, it is discussed in the context of armed resistance. And even there, the discussion has been uh, fraught, has been challenged by decades of denial from the Turkish state. So even that, I don't think, is explored in a significant manner. Now, uh, what I do in this work is uh, focus on unarmed resistance, uh, emphasizing mainly efforts to communicate between deportees, efforts to provide uh, medi medication, food, cover, efforts to save 
uh, and provide shelter to deportees who are destined to be uh, deported to their zone and killed, and uh, other, other kinds of smuggling operations, efforts to intervene with the central authorities and local authorities, uh, and, a, and, a, and a whole vast uh, network. And I use the vast here, uh, realizing that I'm referring to uh, you know, at least uh, hundreds of people who are involved in this effort, in this loosely connected network, whose uh, aim is to save as many people as possible from destruction. And so this is where I, uh, I, I use the term humanitarian resistance, and I define it as actions conducted against the will of authorities, uh, against the policies of authorities, or against the law in order to save Armenian deportees. And I use this kind of definition and approach uh, because it is critical to distinguish these kinds of actions from uh, efforts of humanitarianism and self-help that are conducted in an environment where the local authorities or central authorities are actually allowing it. What I demonstrate in the book is that beginning in the fall of 1915, uh, much of these uh, uh, actions, many of these actions are actually uh, not allowed by the authorities, are in fact punished by the authorities, and therefore uh, these efforts take on, uh, you know, more of a resistance because they are going against the will of the authorities and the individuals who are involved are risking their lives in the, in the process. Right, that actually uh, brings us to the next question that um, I was going to ask. So uh, we talk about the con concepts and your approaches to research, but how was this actually happening on, in the field, on the ground? Uh, when this uh, relief network operating in Aleppo and surrounding areas turned to resistance network, uh, how this happened, why uh, it had to happen? Uh, yes, so we had, uh, so uh, just a quick summary of what happens before the book, my book picks up. Sure. Uh, there's, uh, as, as uh, uh, the deportations and the ma massacres across the Ottoman Empire, and uh, the deportees who are surviving these initial rounds of deportations, massacres, deprivations, exposure, start arriving in uh, Ottoman Syria beginning in early to mid-May 1915, but these, this is a trickle. This is just a few dozen deportees every day. Eventually, these numbers uh, go up by the summer. We're talking about thousands arriving uh, on, on certain days. So, uh, but beginning in May 1915, as deportees are trickling into Ottoman Syria and particularly Aleppo, there is a local Armenian community in Aleppo of around 10,000 people that mobilizes to help. A couple days after this initial mobilization, already the Armenian Apostolic Church, the Armenian Catholic Church, and the Armenian Evangelical Church uh, each have their own committees set up or individuals tasked with help, helping these deportees. And uh, at this early stage, uh, these efforts are actually allowed by the local authorities. The Aleppo governor at this point was friendly to Armenians. And in fact, many of these committees actually 
request permission to conduct these operations and they do receive that permission. And this continues for uh, until I would say early in the summer of 1915. Uh, you know, as more and more deportees are arriving and as the deportation process has, is reaching a point where a significant uh, bulk of the Armenian population uh, is removed from their ancestral lands and pushed in the direction of Syria, the priority starts shifting of the central authorities from across you know, different parts of the Ottoman Empire into Syria, which is now the place where most of the survivors uh, are arriving. And at that point, the central authorities start uh, cracking down on humanitarian efforts, making arrests, exiling figures that they, they cannot uh, uh, arrest or kill or imprison, you know, the Catholicos and others. And so this is uh, over the summer, this, this process continues escalating. And by the fall of 1915, most efforts to help deportees uh, are, uh, can be clearly uh, considered uh, dangerous efforts and initiatives. And although it's of course difficult to pinpoint a particular moment at which there's a shift, of course there's places where uh, it's still, uh, you know, humanitarian work is, 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 is operating while in other places this crackdown has already started so it's a continue, it's a process, but uh, by the fall of 1915, uh, most of these individuals who are taking part in this network uh, have gone underground and are doing their work clandestinely. And at that point, what they are doing is uh, nothing short of uh, resistance. Right. So um, you talk about this huge number of Armenian deportees ending up in Ottoman Syria. And one of the very crucial aspects of the perpetration of Armenian genocide that you discuss in your book is the concentration camps. <clears throat> so um, what did these camps look like in Syrian deserts? Um, how were they established, managed, run? And also why is it important to emphasize on the existence of these concentration camps? Uh, thank you for the question. Yes, in fact, the first uh, half of the book focuses on Aleppo, while the second half is uh, largely focuses on these concentration camps. Many of these camps are set up along the lower bend of the Euphrates, from Meskana all the way to Derzor. Some of them are around Aleppo. And I, uh, I emphasize these camps because this is where the uh, large, large proportion of the deportees who survived the initial rounds of massacres and arrived in Syria are eventually uh, placed. These are uh, camps that are set up uh, by uh, orders from the Ottoman authorities. There are directives detailing how these camps are supposed to be operated. Some of them, uh, you know, you know, one, one directive that I use extensively in the text has uh, 50 odd number of instructions about how these camps are supposed to be run. Uh, many of the points are uh, just, uh, you know, talk about how, you know, how good of a care should be provided to the people who are placed in these camps. 
the assistance that's going that's supposed to be provided to them, food, trend, you know, facilitate, facilitating their move from one camp to the other, etc. Ultimately, on the ground, these camps become, uh, in many ways, places where Armenians are sent to die. Uh, as I document, there is uh, in the book there's a typhus epidemic uh, spreading in the region. The Armenians are both, uh, you know, become victims of this uh, epidemic because of overcrowding and being targeted and all the deprivations they've been exposed to. But at the same time, the disease also is spreading in the local population, and uh, the 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 authorities essentially push even a larger number of Armenians who are hiding in cities like Aleppo, uh, force them out into these camps, essentially for them to die alone. And uh, and I document this in in great detail. I focus on each uh, each one of the major camps and offer uh, a, a social history of these camps. But I do this in the context of first situating these camps in the global history of the evolution of the concentration camps from earlier uh, colonial cases into the Herero genocide, which was also a colonial manifestation of the camps, and then the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust and uh, Nazi Germany. So after uh, that kind of contextualization, I start focusing on the Armenian case and build here, it's important for me to note this, on the work of Raymond Kevorkian, who had provided a small, a brief overview of, of concentration camps in his uh, monumental book, The Armenian Genocide, A Complete History. Uh, Raymond Kevorkian, uh, alongside Tanner Akcham and Deborah Dwork, were my advisors, dissertation advisors, and uh, I owe much to their uh, scholarship and to their support over the years. So, uh, so what I do at this point is heavily relying on untapped Armenian sources, other documents. I try to reconstruct life and death in these camps and demonstrate that Armenians actually were engaged in a set of uh, actions in terms of resisting this destruction. And they were also loosely connected to the resistance network uh, radiating out of Aleppo that we already talked about. Right. Um, so why don't we talk about the gender aspect of this discussion of this um, resistance, the network and the struggle. Uh, in scholarly literature, women and children frequently are described as vulnerable, desperate creatures, victims in need of urgent help. Yet in your book, you actually present a different picture. Um, so what role did women play in the struggle for survival within the resistance network. Um, and maybe also we can reflect on um, experiences of another group, the children, and uh, what they went through, how aware they were of the situation around them. Uh, thank you for the question, Asya. I know this is also an important uh, aspect of your own work. And uh, so in many ways, what I try to do in this, in this work is demonstrate how uh, when we start thinking about resistance, the instant we start thinking about resistance, uh, outside of the narrow confines of armed resistance, not only are we doing uh, good scholarship, we're also doing the right thing because we are 
uh, in incorporating uh, the, as I said, the range, the full range of responses by the victims and uh, bringing to attention the critical role that many women played in this effort that they may have played, uh, you know, we do know of anecdotal cases of women being part of armed resistance effort, but as we broaden this, the aperture, and we look at the, uh, as I said, the range of responses, it becomes clear that, you know, uh, many women, women were putting their lives in danger in the effort to thwart the policies of the authorities and save as many Armenians as possible. And in that regard, uh, the book tries to uh, 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 to demonstrate this kind of role that is played by uh, a number of women, both in Aleppo and in in the concentration camps, and all the way to Rasulain and Derzor. And I focus uh, on a number of key figures, but also on many other women who are playing a critical role. But their stories are sometimes forgotten. Some of these women are killed in the process and their stories have uh, essentially are lost to history. But, uh, but I do try to uh, make sure that their, their narrative and their role is highlighted. Uh, you know, in Aleppo, people like Nora Altunyan, who is on the cover of the book, uh, people like uh, Beatrice Rohner, uh, people like uh, Araksa Jabedjan in, uh, in, in their Zor, uh, women like Emma Santurian, again in Aleppo, are uh, central figures in, in this narrative of humanitarian resistance. Uh, overall, in the center, in Aleppo, as these committees are forming, as I mentioned earlier, these are mostly church committees, and they are overwhelmingly uh, made up of men. But we, as I, as I demonstrate in the book, both in Aleppo and even more so in concentration camps, in, in the desert and along the Euphrates. Uh, more, the farther away you go from the pull of the center in terms of these central, you know, these committees that are formed by uh, churches, uh, the more prominent the role of the women becomes. And of course, there's also a challenge with records and sources here because, you know, I, I am using, for example, the archives of the Aleppo prelacy. Uh, this will be documenting largely the meetings and the discussions of a bunch of men, right, who are, you know, who constitute these committees. But again, if you uh, broaden uh, the source base and here, you know, I'm thankful to uh, many people who have opened up those dusty drawers and shared their uh, records, photographs, documents with me, uh, you can really try to reconstruct this effort and demonstrate the critical role played by women and children, in fact, as I talk about both in, in Aleppo and in concentration camps. Uh, so uh, since you talked about their role in uh, the resistance network, um, there is this discussion, for example, in Holocaust studies, right? How easier it was sometimes for women to be in the underground, to be part of resistance in contrast to men. Um, what do you see in your research regarding this aspect? Did it make it easier being a woman to be part of this resistance network? Uh, there, was there any uh, like difference uh, and how did it affect their work? Uh, 
that men were uh, primary ta targets for killing during the Armenian genocide is, is well documented. And at the same time, the fact that women uh, not only were targeted for killing, but also sexual violence is also uh, very well documented in the scholarship. Now, if we look at this particular region and the individuals that I look at, many of the women who are operating in the concentration camps, for example, in places like Meskene, establishing, uh, you know, a tent orphanage, you know, and collecting uh, children whose parents have died in, in the concentration camps and trying to save them, uh, sometimes having confrontations with uh, Ottoman Turkish authorities who are running the camp. Uh, most of these women are killed. Most of these women do not survive the genocide and do not end up writing memoirs. And what we know of them are the letters that are sent to uh, individuals in uh, in Aleppo and elsewhere, to missionaries, to consuls and others. And in that way, we can uh, sort of uh, have some sense of the kind of work they have been doing. Uh, so in terms of the risks and the dangers uh, associated with this, uh, it is uh, important to note that some of the central figures, particularly in the camps and their Zor, uh, their chances of survival were not any better than the chances of survival of men. I can repeat again the example of Araksa Jebedjian. She was one of the individuals operating in Derzor and working with Beatrice Vonner, the Swiss teacher in Aleppo, in providing assistance. And she ends up being uh, killed right before the Derzor massacres in early 19, uh, in, in the summer of 1916. And uh, she's imprisoned, tortured, and killed. So this is just one example uh, out of many. In Aleppo, some of the key uh, actors, including Nora Altunia, was very well connected, uh, had uh, significant uh, connections with uh, the diplomatic uh, circles, with Jamal Pasha himself and others, uh, you know, did survive uh, the, the genocide despite their, uh, their efforts. Now, uh, in terms of missionaries and others who are helping, I mentioned Beatrice Rohner, although she was not killed, but she did have uh, a, a, a breakdown after the government came after her and uh, essentially arrested, killed her associates who were Armenians and uh, prevented her from continuing her work. So she does have an emotional breakdown, is incapable of work, and her colleagues actually take her out of the Ottoman Empire and she only returns after to Syria after uh, Ottoman defeat and withdrawal from that region. Right. Well, um, throughout this conversation, we keep hearing about uh, documents, about memoirs, letters. Um, so let's talk a bit about your research work and the sources that you used uh, for this extensive work in the very first pages of the resistance network, you emphasize that your work, and I quote, stands on the shoulders of survivors, end quote. So what do you mean by that? So there is a, a impressive work out there that looks at uh, Ottoman documents and sources and tries to understand what is going on during World War One. 
German sources, missionary documents, diplomatic documents. What I try to do in this work is bring all those together and add another critical element as I try to reconstruct the history of both the genocide and the pushback and resistance to it. And these are uh, Armenian sources. In many ways, this, is, uh, this work indeed uh, stands on the shoulders of, uh, of, of survivors who uh, wrote their memoirs, of survivors who wrote letters, of, of survivors who have left any uh, kind of information, bits and pieces that I can use in order to triangulate between Western sources, Ottoman sources, and under, have a better understanding of what is going on in this region. So, uh, so in that sense, I, I do very much, I cannot imagine this book being written uh, uh, without those hundreds, thousands of documents and accounts and, and, and diaries and, and, and memoirs. And, and that, that is critical because in fact, part of the reason, an important part of the reason that our understanding of how humanitarianism, Western humanitarianism worked in the Ottoman Empire was flawed is because Armenian sources were not tapped properly and appropriately and sometimes at all. Uh, and this is, this is critical. Uh, in many ways, uh, the, the survivors and the voices of the survivors are not only helping us uh, bring into the scholarship something that for, for a long time was considered, you know, not advisable, right? Armenian sources are biased. Uh, we should focus on Ottoman documents. We should focus on Western diplomatic documents to uh, create this narrative. That This kind of argument is already at this point out the window. We have a wonderful scholarship that's called, coming out that's really tapping into these sources. And in many ways, people like Raymond Kevorkian and, and others have paved the way in this regard. What is happening in this book is, is really how we see how uh, the voices of the survivors are helping us understand better the way in which both the genocide is unfolding in this region, which is a critical region in Armenian genocide history and an understudied region. We all know about Armenians were sent to the desert and killed but what constituted that being sent to the desert part, right, has not been uh, reconstructed in this level of uh, blow by blow uh, detail and in terms of uh, a reflection analysis of what is going on. And, and the, the, the role, the voices of the survivors and, and, and our resources are absolutely critical to this. This work would not have been possible without them. Absolutely. Um... Well, let's talk also about um, the targeted audience uh, for this publication. Um, what do you expect them to take away from this book? And who is this audience? Uh, perhaps at the core of uh, this is the scholarly community that is interested in uh, the Ottoman Empire, the late Ottoman Empire, uh, the Armenian genocide, modern Armenian history, and mass violence in general, because much of what is explored here from perspectives ranging from using uh, approaches like urban uh, and theories from urban studies, Holocaust studies, network uh, theory, etc. Uh, many of these uh, theoretical lenses that I use in this work uh, at, uh, ultimately uh, is a way of tapping into mass violence and looking at it and thinking about it in ways that are 
you know, different than the, the way in which this is this has been done conventionally. So in that sense, I would say that is the core uh, constituency. But also, I am someone who uh, very much believes in uh, communicating uh, in an accessible manner. And that is perhaps a product of my interest in, uh, in, in literature and my work and career in journalism before I moved to academia. So in many ways, the, uh, the book is, as one colleague uh, called it, eminently readable. It's, it's, it's really uh, for, uh, for any person who would like to read this narrative. And uh, even if they are uh, mainly interested in the stories that are in there and in the way in which uh, this particular experience is unfolding in Syria, uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it is quite re readable. Of course, uh, ultimately, the judge is going to be uh, the, the, the readers. And, uh, and, and I have no, uh, you know, I, I cannot predict, you know, which constituencies are going to find the book more compelling than others. But I do hope that it does have that kind of resonance and it goes beyond the scholarly community and uh, helps educate uh, broader uh, audiences on, on the Armenian genocide and about and on thinking about the violence and the resistance uh, more broadly. I'm sure it will. Uh, I mean, it's first of all, while it discusses very difficult topic, at the same time, it's so easy to read it. So that's, I think, one of the uh, important achievements of uh, your book. But, you know, you're in academia and you are doing your scholarship. So this book is not the end. It actually is just the beginning. So my next question, my final actually question is, what are you working on now? What should we expect? <laughs> I am uh, working on a book on two midwives, sisters who are midwives who uh, worked and assisted in childbirths in the Ottoman Empire, initially in the city of Eintop, beginning in 1888-89, and uh, eventually uh, starting in the 1920s, they were forced to leave Eintop and move to Aleppo. Uh, they, each sister, uh, Sephora and Nurita Shunarokian sisters, each sister had uh, a ledger in which, uh, you know, every single childbirth they attended is listed with additional information about the family uh, and other details. And uh, I am working as uh, using these two ledgers as the core material, but also supplementing it with a number of interviews uh, a significant, a, a large number of additional documents and scholarship. So this this is going to be the story of two midwives who, during their lifetimes, officiated over the birth of close to seven thousand children in the city of Aintab before the genocide and in the twenties and onwards in Aleppo. Uh, in Aleppo, many of these in in Aintab, many of these children were uh, Armenian. Newborns were Armenian, you know, born to Armenian families, Muslim families, Jewish families, Mormon families, you name it. And this is an, a, a very, it, it's, it's a microcosm of life in the city and a social life in the city. And in Aleppo, we see a similar kind of, when we look at their ledgers, a similar kind of uh, diversity 
but it also largely focuses on, at this point in the 20s, on the children who are born to survivors of the genocide from all over the Ottoman Empire. So in many ways, this is going to be a book about the decline of the Ottoman Empire, the, the final years of the Ottoman Empire and the birth of the Middle East through two midwives who are officiating the births of thousands of children in the region. Well, that sounds fascinating. And again, you're putting women in the center of the story about decline of empires, which is, I think, an, a great approach. We're looking forward to seeing this book. And well, this will be it for today. So um, allow me to thank you very much for uh, being with us virtually today and for sharing your work. Thank you for the opportunity. I very much appreciate it.